You're listening to the Christian Post Podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Showalter. What is known as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or the Mormon Church, was founded by Joseph Smith in western New York approximately 200 years ago. The word Mormon is originally derived from the Book of Mormon, a religious text Smith published, which he claims to have translated from Golden Plates with the assistance from the angel Moroni. Known for their proselytizing and zealous door-to-door missionaries, the Mormon religion now boasts of over 16 million members worldwide. Yet evangelicals typically do not recognize Mormonism as historic Christianity, and many refer to it as a cult. It's for that reason that I'm engaging my guest today. If you ask Sean McCraney, who spent 40 years in the Mormon church, if you want to represent Jesus to a Mormon, the most important thing you have to do is to love them. Sean is the host of The Heart of the Matter, an entertaining broadcast that provides insight into the Mormon religion and how it diverges from small-o Orthodox Christian faith. He is particularly passionate about helping Mormon people understand and apprehend the freedom found in a relationship with Jesus in contradistinction to the torment that institutionalized religion yields when it seeks to wedge itself between the believer and God. Sean, I'm so grateful to have you today here on the CP Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, and that is just a really well-written introduction. Well, I I thank you very kindly. Uh, (laughs) It really is my pleasure to have you on today. Um, As I mentioned in that introduction, it's part of an ongoing series that we're doing here at CP, um, because we're noticing that, you know, interest in all kinds of things, particularly around the occult and the cult, cult thinking is kind of intensifying these days, and the contrast between good and evil is becoming, you know, more stark, and mm-hmm. people are looking for stability, they're looking for the truth, um, but I am really excited to hear from you because of what you've you've lived through and what you're doing now. So briefly tell us your history about your time and life inside the LDS Church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and just give us sort of the distilled version of how you emerged from it. Uh, quickly, born in the church, uh, parents converted before I was born, went on a mission, uh, LDS mission to Pennsylvania was came back and was married in the Los Angeles temple to my wife. I had three children started to work up the ranks in the local uh, church uh, in a bishopric and an elders quorum, a stake high uh, council. And so uh, a seminary teacher, but the, there was a problem, Brandon, with me and the faith. And, and, and I have a real issue with uh, hypocrisy and I was a hypocrite. Because outwardly, I was uh, looking the part. Uh, inwardly, I, I knew I was having difficulty in my life with sin and thoughts. and I just couldn't feel reconciled to God. And that kind of turned into a lifelong search for truth. I went about 17 years as an active Mormon with my family, looking for truth in all the wrong places. And one day, when I was really at the end of my rope, I happened to come upon a, a, a radio program and the preacher on the radio asked the question if you could get yourself right with god why haven't you done it and it was a really good question because i had been on the mission i go to the temple i pay my tithes and and i i couldn't do it and then he answered his own question he said the reason you haven't done it is because you can't and i went on to listen to what he meant and he explained that jesus came and lived like i couldn't and uh, paid for my sin. And by the end of that day, I was radically born again. 
Wow. Radically. One radio program. One radio show. I happened. I wasn't. I wasn't a Christian. I wasn't listening to Christian radio. I just happened to tune into it when I got in the car to go someplace. And it was in the end. It was a guy named Charles Stanley. Oh wow! And uh, I, I went. I then later, years later, flew out and met Charles Stanley, and and I just an amazing. But I was radically changed by the Holy Spirit, and yet I remained LDS for another four years. Interesting. So yeah. th- from that moment when you had this encounter with the Living God and the Holy Spirit spoke to your heart so clearly, um, yeah. and I want to talk about this in more depth here in, in a moment. But you know, you say you stayed in for a few years. Was it just like you were? You didn't know what else to do, or sort of was that the moment when you started to disentangle what you believed about the Mormon Church? And how did that all? I mean, how do you? How did you start to reconcile or deal with all of this as you experienced God so powerfully? Yeah, the answer is yes. I all of it. I I uh, I didn't know what else to do. Mm-hmm. I was certainly jaded by my LDS upbringing against the other churches. And I didn't associate what happened with me by the Holy Spirit to another church. Interesting. And so I, I didn't go looking for another church. And so while I was in those four years, I just remained with my wife and kids. I told my wife about it. She was stalwart in the Mormon faith and taking my kids to the Mormon church still and their dances still and their activities. But all the while observing. And that's when I wrote a book called Born Again Mormon. And, uh, and, and I tried to say I was born again by the side of the road and yet I still remain Mormon. And, uh, that was my response to write that book, to try to explain to my Mormon family and friends what had happened to me. Interesting. Yeah. I, I, I shared the concept of that book, both with LDS people and with people from Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa, who I later met, who were pretty high up in that uh, organization. And they laughed at me. They said, there's no such thing. Right. The Mormons said, we're already born again. What are you talking about? And the Christians said, there's no such thing. And I was like, you're wrong. I'm one right now. So how did then, after that four years, did it finally sort of flip in your mind where even though you radically encountered God and you understood the the basics of the gospel and how Jesus has to do it for us and that we can't do anything by our own striving, right. what was it that sort of tipped you past that, that four-year mark where you realize, okay, I've got to cut ties with this and move on to the next sort of phase? I met three friends at a local gym. They all happened to go to the same church. They all were uh, serious Christian believers, and none of them told me, Sean, you have to stop going to the Mormon church. Not one of them. Wow. They all just said, well, let's just talk to you about what it, what you're doing. And I would ask them questions, and they would answer, and it went over for, for quite a while. And then they got me to reading the Bible, and that is what moved me from thinking, it doesn't matter where you go, to knowing it does matter where you go mm. and what you do. Yeah. So they loved you in the midst of your process. They did, yeah. and they loved me because my antennas were out. I was looking for recruiters to religion. I was looking for, and they never, in the course of the years that we were associated with each other, we still do, but they never said, you know, come over to our church. And I learned later that that church was Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa with Chuck Smith. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So just for, for some of our listeners, they, they've never been to a Mormon church or they're averse because they, you know, think certain things about it. What's a typical, you know, weekly service uh, at a Mormon congregation like? What's all involved? 
It's, you know, essentially it's a, uh, it's a business meeting with some, uh, with, with some advice on how to live your life according to the, the, the doctrines of the Mormon church with a communion service, they call it sacrament where people renew their baptismal covenants by taking bread and water. And, and so they go every week as a means to take that sacrament to renew the covenants they made at baptism. It's, it's, they're very dry. There is not, there's a lot of emotionalism from people, but not in the music. And uh, it really is, they call them meetings, our sacrament meeting, because that's really what they are. They're like, they're like meetings. They're not, they're not worship services. Mm-hmm. Very, uh, I guess, maybe can I say, uh, they're a little bit intellectual, I guess, a little mm-hmm. bit. And all based around the family and the community and going to church. So what was yeah. the biggest difference that you, uh, when you actually did go to this Calvary Chapel on Costa Mesa, what struck you as this is the most profound distinction between the Mormon services, the Mormon meetings that I went to, and a worship service at Calvary Chapel? What, Jesus. What's the, well, obviously, <laughs> that's not just a Sunday school answer, but what about the service was just the most different? Well, different I, Chuck feature? was teaching through the Bible verse by verse. Mm-hmm. Uh, he cited, uh, you know, he cited the Old Testament to substantiate his views on what the New Testament was saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a worship service that uh, Chuck was kind of conservative in that way. And that was good for me because I don't think I could have uh, gone from the stoic nature of Mormonism into a flamboyant, a flam- flam- flamboyantly uh, delivered rock concert service right, right, right. and all that. Yeah. So it was a good transition for me, and uh, and and just the spirit, the spirit of God uh, that was there is really. I mean, I know it sounds like the Sunday school answer, but it really was the difference. Interesting. And uh, and as that started to sink in, and I could see the differences, that's when I started telling my family, "You don't realize what what's going on." And then when I go back to the Mormon church to support my family, it was almost nauseous. Mm. Yeah. Now, now, correct me if I'm wrong. In addition to the Bible, which you say that Chuck Smith was teaching through it verse by verse, I have heard, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that there really isn't a whole lot of Bible teaching that goes on in the Mormon Church. You've used the KJV, but in addition to, we're just going to get into some of the theological basics here. In addition to the KJV Bible, they have the Book of Mormon, a book called Pearl of Great Price, and Doctrine and Covenants. Is that correct? There's three others. Is that, am I missing any? There's three others, and what you're missing is modern-day revelations from the living prophet. Okay, so explain yeah. some of the—okay, what are all these—give us this of the fundamentals. What are these extra-biblical texts, and explain sort of the structure of the organization that includes the ongoing modern you know, revelations of the prophet. Okay, simply put, uh, Joseph Smith, the founder, uh, was told that the Bible had been corrupted over time, he in at the same time he learned that there was some golden plates hidden in a hill near his house, and he took those by the direction of an angel and he translated them, which were written in something called Reformed Egyptian, into uh, into this book called the Book of Mormon. It was a straight uh, plagiarism of a f- number of other books that were available at that time, but the Mormons would reject that. He also received revelations, and that's compo- those are composed in what's called the Doctrine and Covenants, Joseph Smith's revelations. And then there's the Pearl of Great Price, which somebody was coming through town, and they had some funeral texts, 
and Joseph took them, and he said that they were the writings of Abraham, and he translated them into a book called The Pearl of Great Price, which has been proven to be one of the biggest uh, cons of the whole thing. The modern LDS people don't look to The Pearl of Great Price that much. They do uh, read the Bible. Uh, it, they'll give you like five verses from their own scripture and 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 seven verses from the modern prophet and then they'll give one or two from the bible usually skipping paul's uh teachings uh at least in context so all the the epistles are just sort of forsaken kind of they 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 just they'll include them just to show we we use Mm -hmm. the bible we use the bible but they really don't know what the heck the bible teaches especially in the epistles so what is there, to the extent they have one, their interpretive lens on Scripture? I mean, obviously, even within, you know, broadly defined evangelical Christianity, there's some differences between people who lean more Wesleyan versus Reformed, and there's, then there's the Catholic and Eastern Orthodoxy. Note in the intro I said small Orthodoxy, so we're gonna, I'm, I'm going to be very generous here, but there's a general understanding that among believing Christians that the Bible is God's infallible incorruptible word, that it is, it contains all things essential for salvation, that it can be trusted. What's their take on the Bible itself? It's kind of on a continuum, Brandon. If you look at the spectrum of Mormon history, it started off as Joseph Smith being a Bible reader. In fact, he really knew his Bible to him producing these other books and them becoming much more important and then the people around him mocking the Bible and all the way up to the 60s and 70s and 80s, the Bible even then was, oh, come on, to where now today, I think many Latter-day Saints are starting to try to read it and they're starting to try to understand it and they're finding value in it. And I think that's in part because they want to be seen as Christians and so they want to be uh, reading what Christians really read and not just their own literature. Interesting. What do you think yeah. is precipitating that hunger other than to be other than the desire to be seen as Christians? I mean, well, they're they're a huge political machine. Okay. They're very wealthy. And when Romney ran uh, and he lost, which was to their great chagrin and surprise, uh, they realized we are not seen. We are not accepted in this country as 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 Christian. Their current modern prophet, he is really doing a lot. They changed a lot of the vernacular and have adopted Christian parlance to explain uh, themselves. And they're, they're, so much is changing within it to try to appear as though they are really, truly Christian. And, 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 and in some ways, with individuals, that may be the case. But the, the doctrine of the, of the institution is not Christian. Yes. Yeah. Now, I think that that's generally the feeling that many people have, even as, I mean, I, it's funny because I'll have some, I'll sometimes have conversations with friends who they talk about their lovely Mormon neighbors, and they are, they're extremely, a lot of them are extremely nice people, and they're very servant oriented. They want to help. I mean, it, they make the best neighbors. They really do. Um, mm-hmm. and, and yet you say behind all of this kindness, I mean, and they are deeply sincere. It is, mm-hmm. it is a performance based, works-oriented religion. It just, there's no grace in it, and people are just exhausted because they think that they have to perform for love. Would I be characterizing that right? right, Perfectly. Yeah. Rightly, yeah. So so tell me about the moment, sort of what it sort of produced in you um, when you realized that you were free in Jesus and that all of that pressure was off of you. 
and how have you had conversations with others as they, you know, have come out of that themselves or because what I often hear is that, especially for Christians, you know, evangelical types who really like apologetics or they like, you know, you know, getting into the scripture and sort of debating it and all that stuff is that because of, um, you know, all of the confusion that is added on to the Bible with these extra books and the ongoing, you know, revelations of this prophet guy that is the leader of the church, uh, it's so confusing for people. It's like when you just try to talk about the truth, the truth, the truth, it really doesn't sink in because everything is just so interwoven with their own particular fix on it, and so it doesn't really prove helpful. So, I mean, just share more about, you know, what it was like to actually feel and experience the freedom that you did, and also how you've been able to explain that to other people and other Mormons. Well, uh, to preface that and to make it make sense contextually, I mean, as a Latter-day Saint, really quickly, uh, people have to understand they are under covenants and laws in order to please God. They And, and, the, and the laundry list is there are dozens and dozens of commandments that are emphasized in, on them. They have to be morally pure. They, they That means in every way. They cannot drink coffee, tea, or smoke tobacco, or drink alcohol. They, they must attend their meetings. They must attend the temple. They must pay 10% tithe. They must go to church on Sunday. They must obey their leaders. And on and on and on. That's just scraping the top of it. And so the burden is immense. And so the, obviously when I came to know uh, that the Lord took that burden on and he bore it for me and uh, that uh, his yoke is easy and his burden is light, I then realized, whoa, I'm free from what men have been telling me to do since I was a kid. And the liberation is is like being released immediately from a 10-year heroin addiction. Mm. You, you don't jones to prove God loves you. It's the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. Mm. And so with that mindset, when, when Latter-day Saints can experience that mindset, the light goes on and it outshines all the guilt, all the presuppositional stuff they face, all the worry that they have about being with their family in the afterlife. It outshines that stuff and they're free. So talk about the afterlife then, because you say all of the you know presuppositions and all of the worries that are piled on top of them because of just the nature of what this religion is. You know, yeah. explain some of the additional things that they um, sort of stew over, because this is not, we, and just to be clear to our audience, this is not to sort of mock any of their beliefs at all. We were not about that here at the Christian Post, but like, I know that, and I've, I've only done a rudimentary study of Mormonism. I know that if, and again, please correct me if I've got this wrong, but there's the telestial heaven, the terrestrial heaven, and then the celestial heaven, and there's three levels within that heaven according to Mormon doctrine. Uh, hell is sort of minimized, but then there's there's I've heard talk about you know, being eternally with their families and even becoming like gods. Explain all of these sort of extra things that are within Mormon doctrine that cause this kind of you know psychological pressure that you endured on on other Mormons. Okay, I'll give you the 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 quick rundown. Essentially, Mormonism is is close to universalism. Because they they believe that because of Christ, everybody goes to a heaven. Interesting. And that's those heavens you just named. 
the ones who go to outer darkness is what they call it. They'll say hell, but outer darkness are people like me who were raised in the church, turned against the church, and are now apostates and heretics according to the church. I'm going to outer darkness according to that keeps people from rebelling. Um, the terrestrial so kingdom. So it's a fear mechanism. It's a fear mechanism. Definitely fear. Definitely yeah. fear. Yeah. Uh, and then, and, but then that being said, and while everybody's going to go to heaven, the bottom line with any active Latter Day Saint is you have to go to the celestial kingdom and the highest degree. If the afterlife is going to mean anything at all to you, that's where you want to be. And that is where they, 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 so they have this, oh, you're going to be okay. And, and I'll say to people on the plane, they'll say, what do you do? I'll say, I'm a pastor. Oh, that's great. You know, that, that's so wonderful. But in reality, in their mind, them not knowing I was LDS, they're saying, you're going to go to the celestial kingdom. You might make it to the terrestrial, but you don't get to be with God there. You don't get to continue on eternally with your family. You don't get to do all these other things that they promise you if you get to the highest degree in the celestial. That comes only by baptism with their baptism, receiving their priesthood, which was, uh, you know, acronistically applied to people looking at Hebrews. And then, and then going on and doing all the things that they demand of you, and if you finally do that, you might be able to get in that highest degree, and there you get to be with your family, your wife, for eternity, and propagate other planets, and create other planets, and be like God. Wow. <laughs> so there's fear, there's guilt, there's pressure, there's worry. If Mormons do not worship Jesus. They worship the family. Now, that's not a bad thing in, in this world, but his kingdom's not of this world. And that's right. why of this world, there's such a stalwart, strong, rich organization. But they, Joseph brought heaven down here, and he made it material. And so the Mormons live a material, heavenly life here with their family. That's the focus. And Jesus really is a subtext to all of that. Right. It's in a way, I, I think especially I've I've heard, you know, the testimonies of people who joined the Mormon church and you know, especially in a you know post you know sixties, you seventies sexual revolution sort of chaos culture, having the yeah. kind of family orderliness and the structure is like it was actually sort of an appealing alternative. And, oh, yeah. yet, and yet there's all this other what you're describing is kind of spiritual dysfunction that's going on within it because of, again, all of the pressures that are on added on. If it's if Jesus isn't at the center and it's the family, even the good things like marriage and family can become idols. And in, in fact, that sounds exactly like what, what you're describing. It, it is. It's exactly what it is. And that's why the use of, of antidepressants in the state of Utah tops the nation, or at least it has in the past 15, 20 years. Wow. I mean, the pressures are unbelievable to look Mitt Romney perfect. I've mentioned him twice. Mm -hmm. I thought he would have made a good president. I, mm -hmm. I, I wasn't against him in terms of his administration. Right. But in terms of a Mormon taking office, that would have been very bad for the body. It, it's so, yeah, wow. It, we think of the spiritual implications of... Uh, what this would mean for you know political systems or for society at large, and I, I you know I, there's a big Mormon temple here in the Washington D.C. area where we are, where it's just this very it's a very austere structure. I drive by it on the Beltway, and I always I I can't help but notice that there are six spires to that thing, and wow. six in the in the Bible is the number of man, 
And I I don't think that's a coincidence, you know, how an architecture can reveal in part what it believes. Explain for our listeners, you know, there's a difference between a Mormon meeting at your your local meeting house, your church, and the temple. And what goes on, the Mormon temples, what's the distinction between the two? And I know that certain non-Mormons are not allowed in the temple because then there's marriages and there's all sorts of uh, specifications as for the differences in their buildings. But give our listeners a rundown about how all that works. Well, your observations of the Washington Temple are really are really great because if Mormonism is anything, it is the advancement of man. It is taking bad men and making them better, and it's taking good men and making them great, to quote Gordon B. Hinckley, their ex-president, who's now deceased. So it's all about, and it's very Masonic in the getting you to reform the flesh. And so when you go to the weekly meetings at the church, that's, that's you know, what you do at church and everything. And no one knows who hasn't been to the temple as a youngster what's going to go on in there. They think, oh, it's just more of the church that we go to. But when you go into the temple, that's when the exaltation process begins. That's when a member of the church, you have to be faithful, tithe-paying member, you get a recommend and you go in and you, and you receive what are called your endowments. And that is where you are endowed, uh, blessed with the potential to become a god. And uh, you go in and you undertake several rituals and rites that will blow your mind as a Mormon because you don't have rituals and rites like that in the common everyday weekly church. And when you go in there, you are exposed. And so you think, wow, I have been invited into the inner sanctum. And you make these rituals and rites and commitments and obligations and to the threats of your life and the allegiance to the church with everything you've got and all these other things. And that's what you do for yourself the first time you go through. And from that point on, a member will wear what are called garments. That's white undergarments under their clothes. They covenant to do that for the rest of their life. Uh, and And then that's the first time you go through. From there on out, talk about pressure. Mormons are supposed to, active ones, go back to that temple at least monthly, if not more, and then do that same work vicariously for people who have died. And so they're doing genealogy, and the genealogy comes through the temples, and the Mormon people living in the community go into that Washington, D.C. temple, and they go through for the name of someone who died years ago. So the work for the living is not enough here. They got to do work for the dead. And so the, the, and, and, and the only way you can get in to do the work for the dead is to pay the tithe. And the only way you can get into the celestial kingdom is to have gone through the temple, get, taken out your endowments, and then gone on and done the work as you were uh, told to do. Talk about more pressure. It's <laughs> a lot of work. <laughs> Not just your own you life, but the generations work. before you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You got to save everybody, baby. <laughs> so, tell me more of it. As you, you know, you, you mentioned your own in your own journey. You know, these four years where you were in the church and you met these people who just knew how to love you where you were, and ultimately it was Jesus who drew you out. What were other parts of the gospel that, as it sort of hit you, it liberated you? What What other, you know, obviously Chuck Smith's teaching verse by verse, and you know, you're getting spiritual nourishment that way, but what other sort of glorious revelations just provided some aha moments as sort of big big blows in your you know Mormon worldview coming apart? 
Well, you know, it's an interesting question, Brandon, because uh, quite frankly, not much of it was external. Chuck Smith did a pretty good job of establishing a nice big church over there. But compared to the Mormon structure, it was a joke. And so anytime I ran into a church that was trying to materially manage their institution with, uh, with uh, great uh, glory, I was never impressed because they, even Charles Stanley, when I visited, that's a great place, but it doesn't hold up to the structure of the man-made institution of Mormonism. So I was never brought around to saying, wow, this is good. I was, I was just brought around by the humility of true Christians by their that devotion to Jesus that they would talk about and have. But of course, I cannot overstate. I cannot uh, spend too much time overstating the import of the Bible read by the Spirit. Mm. That is what washed out all the junk. Right. And that's something that's important for your audience members to know, that Mormons can come to know Jesus, but it takes sometimes years and decades for the junk that we've accumulated in our heads and hearts to be washed away by the Word. Wow. How, so it was those things. Yeah. If you had to, I mean, I don't know how you would know any of this, but, uh, well, maybe you can talk, tell me about some of the others who've had maybe similar experiences as you. How many people do you think right now might be in the Mormon church who were once like you in that they had encounters with God listening to a radio station or a podcast or something? And the reality of the gospel has hit them in some way, but they just don't know what to do. Do you think that that's happening to a lot of people? And have you met others where they had similar experiences? And what that's what's, what has that been like? I do. I meet them. We've been in ministry for, you know, whatever, 19 years here in Salt Lake. And uh, because we're on the Internet, I meet people all the time and hear from their calls and emails. And so there are many people who are in that. But I guess it's just like any religion, probably sitting in Catholicism, probably sitting in any yeah, a Southern Baptist church, possible, there yeah, are people right. who haven't got it. They're just coming to church, and there are people who got it. So uh, I, I don't know. I, I believe that there are a lot, but to tell you the, the truth, I think there are just far, far, far too many more who don't. And the church has hindered them from knowing the true and living God through his son, and that is, is, the, is the problem. It is a stumbling block to the truth. So tell me more about, you, you said something earlier that really kind of pricked my ears. You said the word Masonic. Yeah. Now, um, I've, I've read, you know, I, I've seen TV commentators and comedians make fun of the, the undergarments that you also mentioned and the yeah. other sort of strange, you know, rituals that go on. But certainly at the highest level, how could you explain how the Mormon Church is attached to uh, the Masonic lodges? Because I'll tell you, especially in the United States, a lot of us have that in our bloodline, and it's stuff oh, yeah. that's not good. And some people don't know the difference, even sort of mainline Protestant and other you know churches, which they just really lack discernment. But that stuff is so ungodly. How is the Mormon church attached to Freemasonry, and what rituals go on within you know Mormon institutions that resemble or are, in fact, Masonic practices? If you go back to Joseph Smith, and if you could... Uh, define him as anything. He was a uh, phenomenal synthesizer of religious information. And so he pulled and gleaned from all walks. Every time he ran into something new, he would incorporate it into the faith. And he became a, a Mason. And uh, while he was reforming the, the church and bringing the, his gospel out, 
And in fact, they, they, uh, he rose to the rank of a 33, uh, 33rd degree Mason. And uh, he uh, married one of the guys who revealed the Mason's secrets wives secretly to himself later. And he took and he created the temple, LDS temple ceremony. I can't remember the time. It was within like three months later that temple ceremony was created for the LDS that uh, three months after Joseph became a Mason, rose to the 33rd level and then departed from it. And so, I mean, most Masons who know nothing about Mormonism and learn about it will just laugh and say, that's all our stuff. And you can see all that it's all uh, Masonic stuff. When you get a book, um, I can't remember the name of it. There's books out there that will give you the old right. And if you're Mormon, all you got to do is read that old right, and you will find like 70% of the, even the vernacular used in the temple today was borrowed from it. And, and, and masonry is all about, again, moving people up through the ranks of being gods, being better and better men, you know. And, uh, and so that's, that's Joseph. He borrowed from it. And the Mormons say, well, Joseph just restored the corrupt parts. Uh, he took the corrupt parts out of masonry and restored the true parts of masonry back to the earth. And uh, that's because the Mormons want to believe that the Mason story of origin goes all the way back to the building of the temples. But that was all fabricated by the Masons, Masons to begin with. You know, this is really fascinating because, you know, I we're talking about cults and occult stuff. And I think that the image that many people in the United States, certainly, when they think of the occult, they think of, oh, I don't know, these odd-looking symbols and cooker pots and drugs and witchcraft and all this stuff, they don't typically think of these kind of high-minded, you know, ritualistic rituals going on in temples with what appear to be very clean-living, moral Mormon people. That they, yeah. you know, People don't think of occult in that. That's the, When you say the word occult, the image they get is not of a, you know, quote-unquote godly Mormon. That's not That's right. not what they think. And yet there's occultic power operating very strongly behind the scenes. I couldn't be emphasized more. It is so occultic. If you look at the symbols outside their Salt Lake City temple, if you look at the history of Joseph Smith and the dates that he did things like search for gold plates and and the and the uh, relationships that he claims to have had with uh, the afterworld and the amulets and uh, things that he carried on his person as he was the prophet of the church. And then you look at the power that is possessed by the LDS church. They're in the highest ranks of, of our government. They are uh, in every, uh, uh, all the higher echelons of the FBI, the CIA. And I'm not, I'm not big on that stuff. I really don't care about it, but it's the reality. Mm. And it's all that bright darkness if the light that is in you be dark, woe be to you. And that's what it seems to be when we look at Mormonism. Talk to me now, talk to us now about uh, how have you found uh, loving Mormons? Like, what, do you, what have you done in order to sort of break down all of the barriers that exist around their minds? Uh, because, again, because of all of the confusion, all this extra pressure of you know praying not just for yourself and doing your religious duties and even that of the dead that you do in the temple. What's, you know, what are some practical ways in which Christians can just show the unconditional love of the Lord Jesus Christ to these dear people? Because we want to love these people well. It really goes against the uh, mindset of our apologetically driven brothers and sisters 
But what I've learned over the years, uh, having been in it and then having been in the apologetic side, I've, I've made my mistakes. Our early shows, we've done over, you know, probably a thousand shows on the on air and uh, on a live full power television out here. And my early shows were all about apologetics and winning the argument. Mm-hmm. And uh, we pulled people out who were seeking then or who were looking for an excuse to leave. But in the end, Brandon, I have discovered, and I believe this wholeheartedly, seekers seek. I can't create a seeker. And uh, I can just, if seekers seek and they find. And so there are seekers in Mormonism. And all we're doing is planting seeds and there to ask questions if they ask. And if not, to just show them the love of Jesus. Not to talk to them about doctrine, unless they ask. Not to bring up their, their history and the sordid uh, stuff that their prophet had done. It's just, it's just like, um, I don't know what it's like. It's like telling somebody the exact thing they don't want to hear, and they will shut you out the minute you tell them. Mm. And so we have to be there as shining lights of love. And I mean agape love that is unconditional. It's not feigned. If they start preaching Mormonism to you, we just smile. And then one day they'll ask you, what is it that you believe? Mm. And when they open that door, we share Jesus, Christ crucified. And, uh, and, and, and they say, well, I believe that too. And you say, okay, that's fine. If that's what you believe, go ahead. And, and it just takes time. It's, I guess my end point is it's not going to be a one-pitch strikeout. It's going to be a whole game of pitches and walks and uh, everything else before you get a Latter-day Saint to come home. And it's tough. And so it requires a great deal of the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, patience, Mm -hmm. kindness, all of those things. It's not—we just are pushing them into the corner with our rhetoric. We just push them in the corner when we say, you're not Christian because— they are really living what we would think are Christian lives. Mm. So they can't understand why that accusation is being leveled at them when they don't aren't sleeping with their neighbor and they're not getting drunk and they're not doing all. So they really think that they're Christian, not realizing that Paul says in Romans 10, they're going about to establish their own righteousness, not knowing the righteousness of God. That's such a good word. Obviously we have to, as Christians, we have to live our lives in such a way that is uncompromised and obviously when we do fail stay accountable and stay you know confess sin one to another and you shall be healed you know we we, we've got to do our own due diligence of course but it's coming from such a different place it's not because we have to it's in response to the grace of god right um and i i just love that your word there because i see i've seen some kind of cult dynamics uh, even amongst christians who they are believing believers, that these kind of fear tactics and almost manipulative things operating within what would otherwise be, you know, pretty biblical, godly, evangelical church. Have you seen within sort of other churches sort of the same kind of control tactics that you once knew in Mormonism, and how have you urged others to sort of guard against that? Because I've, I tell you what, that uh, that apologetics, you know, bit there, we're just trying to get the most pristine truth out there or whatever and sort of convince them as though the sort of the purity of the argument is somehow just going to seal the deal. Boy, that's yeah. that. what you said was just gold there because I, I brush up against that every once in a while. And I'm just like, 
dude or dudette, do you know how to love people or are you just out to win the argument? Because that, I'm going to tell you, that is how Phariseeism takes root. People don't think they'll be like a Pharisees in the New Testament. It's like, nope, we're all, we can all even do that by accident. We can all become that even unwittingly. But I'm amazed at just the, some of the religious fervor that people have thinking that because they've got, you know, the word biblical next to their name or whatever, that they're somehow going to, that should just somehow conquer it all. Yeah. You know, uh, brother, we, uh, the time we've been here, we do shows every week and we talk about that primarily, but the thing about it is, is, uh, there's a saying among people who have left Mormonism and have stepped into, uh, the churches here in the state of Utah, at least, or other places. And the saying is they call those churches Mormon light, like Bud Light, but it's Mormon light. Interesting. And what they mean by that is those churches are doing the exact same thing that the Mormon church does to people. And, and, and the people who go to those churches and find it to be Mormon light are offended and leave. And they can't find a church that will simply allow them to, to learn about Jesus uh, you know, be responsible and and just and just not have burdens placed on them. Interesting, constant burdens. So, what does Mormon? So what is Mormon light then? Is that in its sort of approach to ministry or sort of controlling dynamics, controlling dynamics, or structures, or what layers of com- Ta- committees? It's and money. Uh, it's money. It's always money. Mm. And Mormon ex Mormons are really attuned to that. That's why we stand really strongly on that point against it. Sorry. But uh, what do you mean, uh, like how money is used or what? Oh, the word tithe, the word tithe, the word you've got to pay. This is a minimum of what God expects of you. I mean, and it becomes almost the topic that never ends in many of these larger churches that have huge budgets. And the Mormon people see it. The ex-Mormons see it. And so we lose them. We get them to come to Jesus but they never find those friends who teach them, you know, the truth. They they go to a church and they find out, I'm just getting put under more burden. And will you sign this contract? And will you be part of this team? And if you do that, and they just like, will you, will you volunteer for the church? And you start serving the church more than you serve the Lord. And more mm. ex-Mormons won't do it unless they are just looking for something for their family. And then, you know, of course they would. How, how should tithing be approached then? Because I see, obviously, I see a biblical... I think it's biblical to tithe, but that is a really that's a really key thing. And I know it's debated about, you know, there's the verse in the Old Testament about the tithe, bring the tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And then there's this the whole concept of giving an offering in addition to the tithe. But how do you approach tithing now as an ex as a former Mormon? I, I, I have a different opinion than you, brother. I don't okay. I don't think the New Testament tithe it, when you really look at all of the examples of it used is a new testament contract i think cheerfully giving is fine mm-hmm. i think donation uh, boxes are fine but when the focus is on and, and it's just funny to me well let me put it this way i won't even go down the theological argument with you. i'll just no, say this with mormons don't get bogged down at, with arguing or talking to them about tithes the trinity uh eternal punishment Mm-hmm. Um, uh, where we came from, don't get bogged down in those because Mormons believe that we had a pre-earth life as spirits with God. That's where he created each of us individually, and we come into bodies here. They don't understand the Trinity, and they have been so 
messed up by Joseph Smith's version of what God is, that when you say Trinity, it doesn't make sense, and it takes years for them to understand it. When you talk about tithes to them, they, they just hear the Mormon prophets saying you got to pay your tithes or you can't get in the temple. And so all of those things are non-issues when it comes to salvation, aren't they? Mm. Salvation is we want Jesus and we want to believe on him and by God's grace we're saved. When we get Mormons into that place, those other things will start to be met with a little bit more agreement and understanding and everything else. But to start with that stuff, oh, God, it's such a, it's yeah. so harmful to, to the no, mission efforts. I appreciate that insight because I, I think it can be— I think, you know, a lot of Christians do have some of the same kinds of reservations about that kind of thing, um, Mormons especially right. in light of what they came out of. But how have you seen, um, you know, there's recent news about sort of shifting opinions within the Mormon Church, and I guess if you have ongoing revelation, of course you would. I mean, I know that Mormon doctrine has been changed many times. The texts of their their texts have been edited and readjusted. So, you know, they're seen as, especially among, you know, Christians, they're sort of fellow social conservative allies in certain areas, and so, you know, friendly with cooperation, and obviously we still, I think, should cooperate wherever we can. That's just good good policy anyway, to work where there's issues of mutual agreement. But how have you seen things shift around in recent years, and how are things, uh, how are things changing within the Mormon Church that, that you're aware of? Because you're right there in the heart of it in Utah. Yeah, uh, you know... It's a real dicey subject, Brandon, because the inroads of Mormonism into the views of Christianity proper, orthodoxy, uh, always start with uh, helping cure social ills and evils. And so they are for the family and they're against abortion and all those things. Mm -hmm. And of course, the Christian brothers are, are pretty much the same way. And so by adopting those things and teaming up and going side by side, Glenn Beck has done a lot to bring that about. Mm -hmm. uh, they have utilized social evil as a way to and, and uh, as a way to um, ingratiate themselves with Christians. And then now they're changing their language, and so now they're calling people uh, like uh, they're doing their ministry. That word was never used in Mormonism. My whole life, I never heard ministry. Wow. Now it is one of their key words, ministry. We're involved in ministry to this. And so they changed their language. That's what the prophet does. Their phrase is, a living prophet trumps a dead one. And so the living prophet, he's the one receiving revelation for the church today, and he's telling them, this is how we survive. And so they changed their language. It becomes more adaptive to what Christians like, and they slowly are being seen. And, you know, in terms of this world, fine. We can stop uh, whatever, burlesque in a town because the Christians and the Mormons unite together. Right. But in the end, I think it's detrimental. Wow. That's that's a good word. I mean, I really I think there's a lot of people that I mean, people I've, I've encountered this dynamic, too, where. I think a lot of people just want to get along, <laughs> and so you yeah. just don't ever say, yeah. I mean, and so you want to work for common good causes, and it's just, I appreciate your reminder that, uh, not that we have to be you know, paranoid or fearful, but be alert and watchful. Yeah. Yeah, and those, that language can be a very slippery thing, and so I'm sure your antenna are always up. What would you say, um, if you had to, we'll conclude with this. Speak, what is the heart of God 
for the Mormon people and going forward as you take your next steps? I know you still got your broadcast and you're you're focusing on these days on sort of more issues of the day kind of things. But if you had to describe the heart of Jesus for the Mormon people in 2020, what would it be? I can't help but think of the rich young ruler who, in Mark's account at least, he ran up to the Lord. And, uh, and uh, he calls him good master, and Jesus goes through, why do you call me good? There's none good but God. But then uh, he says, you know, obey, obey the commands. Don't do this. Don't commit adultery. Don't kill. Don't do this, do this. And, the, and the, Mark says that the rich young ruler said, all these I have done from my youth. And Mark adds in his gospel, and the Lord loved him. Mm. And I, I, God is love. It's one of the, you know, the only is love, is something. God is. There's only like four or five of them in all of scripture, and love is one of them. And and he I, he must love their desire to uh, be righteous before him. But they have gone about it in, in, in such uh, uh, man-made ways that he has to be urgently hoping that the light will come on of, as to why he sent his son. And so I, I think it's it's a double-edged sword is, the, is uh, God's view of the Mormons. I think he loves their earnestness and loves their desire to be good because many of them want to be good and are, but they're not good in their heart of hearts. They 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 need to be born from above, and uh, and 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 so I think that is the overall call from God on everyone's life, not just the Mormons. Have you been born from above? Uh, and it was because of that roadside experience that changed me so radically, I couldn't deny it that I knew this is the key to reaching my brothers and sisters, to introduce the rebirth from above that gives them new life and then helps them see how errant they once were. Wow. So give one final piece of advice, if you could, just for for a Christian who wants to love his Mormon neighbors well— um, what's one thing they can do practically? You know, I really do believe it's to not try to be an expert in what Mormons believe, but be an expert in what Christians believe. Mm. And really know what you are about and live it. Uh, I, I cite Marth, Martin Luther on our show all the time. Be Christ to your neighbor. Really be Christ to your neighbor. And ultimately, they will see that you're not Mormon, they may try to recruit you in because they think you are so great, and you'll be able to someday explain to them why you have the approach, it's because he loved you first.